even with all of its flaws and divisions and struggles that no one is denying, the fact is people from all over the world still flock to this nation every single year. In fact, uh, annually over one million people migrate to the United States from other countries. It is far and away, uh, the U.S. has more immigrants than any other nation on earth. There are more than 40 million people who were born in other countries living <clears throat> in the U.S. today. That actually accounts for one-fifth of all of the migrants in the entire world. Okay? There's a reason why people want to leave where they're from and come here more than any other place on earth. The truth is, I believe we're profoundly blessed to live in America. And yet, if we're being honest, this great country of ours is broken in many ways. It is fragmented and fractured by political divisions and social unrest more than any other period, at least in, in my lifetime. Okay, the truth is we're living in a time of great division, which happens to also be a great opportunity for the church. An opportunity unlike any other to model unity and strength and healing to the rest of the world, which by the way, we are uniquely equipped to do because as Christians, we don't bear the image of this world. We bear the image of God, which means unlike any other entity or organization or community on earth, we don't reflect the culture around us. We reflect Christ in us. Jesus Christ, who, who calls us not just disciples or followers, but sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, because we're family. We're his family. The Apostle Matthew records in his gospel that at one point while Jesus was speaking to the crowds of people who'd gathered to hear him, his mother and his brother stood outside and asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You understand, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this thing that we call the church is not a place where we gather to participate in religious activities. Now, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the church is your family. The people sitting around you today, they're not just fellow church members. These are your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers, your sons and daughters. This is family, and it is family that extends beyond these walls to include every follower of Christ on earth, regardless of race, nationality, background, upbringing, personality, preferences, status, or circumstances. And as in any family... Every single member of the family has a responsibility to love and care for every other member of the family. And I imagine I could make that statement in just about any church today, and most of the people in attendance would nod their heads in agreement. But listen, you don't actually love and care for your family simply by saying that you do. No, you, you love and care for your family by actually doing it by actually loving and caring for them on a daily basis, right? You, you can tell your family at home that you love them and care for them all you want to. 
But if you don't actually provide food and shelter and nurture and guidance and discipline and encouragement and forgiveness and support and accountability and commitment, right, all of the things that human beings need to grow and thrive and be healthy, if you don't provide those things, then no matter how much you say it, you don't actually love and care for them. And look, according to Jesus, that's even more true when it comes to this family that we call the church. And so, uh, to be honest, as a pastor, I often look at the church and I ask the question, are we actually loving and caring for one another? Or are we just friendly? Are we genuinely concerned with the needs of each other? Or are we simply comfortable with each other? Right? Are, are we submitted to and serving our brothers and sisters in Christ at all times, no matter the cost to us personally, or do we submit to one another only when it suits us? Do we serve one another only when it doesn't cramp our lifestyle? Because being a member of this family of God, the church, according to Jesus, well, that will require nothing less of you than your very life, all that you have and all that you are. In fact, he said, this is my commandment, not... Uh, not my suggestion, not my idea, not my philosophy, not even my teaching. No, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did he love us? He goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12, and 13. The Apostle John said, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Who's that? It's the church. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. In other words, he's saying it's not enough to simply say that you love and care for one another. It's not enough. You have to actually live that out every single day of your life. Okay, well, what if it's someone I don't get along with? Sorry. There's no exception for that in the command of Christ to lay your life down for your brothers and sisters, right? Well, what if it's someone I really don't like? Sorry. Jesus didn't make any exceptions. Well, what if it costs me more than I want to give? Yeah, Jesus guaranteed us that it would. He said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. You see, this is family. And it is our highest calling to love and care for one another. And yet that calling has been, I think, the greatest struggle for the children of God since the beginning of time. Because we are innately selfish by nature, right? It's natural for us to think of ourselves before we think about anyone else, which we've been talking about of course, for a couple weeks now, if you've been here, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the story of creation, where Adam and Eve have been cast out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden for the sin of putting themselves before God. And as we'll see in our story today, their son, now confronted with the same choice, not only puts himself before God, but he puts himself before his own family in the very worst way because he failed to recognize the profound responsibility that he was given to love and care for his own family. A responsibility, by the way, that every follower of Christ shares today when it comes to the family of God. And yet it's one that I fear much of the church today has lost sight of 
because we've become so consumed with ourselves. So in our story today, which is a story, by the way, about the character of God far more than it is about the character of Cain. This is far more a story about God. Uh, this is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, Cain. And in our story today, we find God demonstrating the kind of love and care for his people that we're supposed to demonstrate for one another, even when we don't have it all together. In fact, especially when we don't have it all together, because that is exactly what God did for us. And it's what we're supposed to be doing for each other when you're a part of his family. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time at Genesis chapter 4. Let's see what we can learn about what it really means to be a part of the family of God. Okay, so Genesis 4, we'll begin by reading the first seven verses. And Adam and Eve, uh, excuse me, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So again, this is Adam and uh, Eve after they're expelled from the garden, probably to the east of Eden as the cherubim and the flaming sword were placed by God on the eastern side of the garden to keep them out. And then later, as we'll see, as God drives Cain away from uh, his family's initial settlement, he ends up even further east of Eden in the land of Nod. Uh, by the way, it's worth mentioning here that this entire chapter is bookended by God's people worshiping him, even though they've sinned against him in the very worst ways. The, the chapter begins and ends with worship. Listen, this is unquestionably meant to be a sign of hope. For all of us, that even in our own brokenness and dysfunction, uh, as dysfunctional as the human race is today, the fact that God still invites us to be in relationship with him when we come to him in humble repentance and worship through Christ should give you tremendous hope. So here they are, Adam and Eve, starting over in a new location. They have their first child, a son they've named Cain, which means acquired. And we know that Eve meant it in the sense that Cain was acquired from God, as she explains as much in her statement in verse 1, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which is significant because it shows us that Eve recognizes that despite her own sin, that God is still moving in her life and still working on her behalf. I mean, clearly God is still with them. He's still helping them and he's still blessing them. Without question, there's a distinct overtone of hope in this statement by Eve, that even though they've rebelled against God, all is not lost. On the contrary, Cain is the sign that even when we sin, there's hope for a better future. Even though Cain, obviously, as we'll see, doesn't live up to his mother's expectations, nonetheless, Eve is still looking to God as her source of hope and blessing, and rightfully so, which again should be a lesson for all of us. Uh, that even after we've messed things up in our own lives and in our relationship with God, even in the very midst of having to deal with the consequences of our own sin, listen, there's always hope in Christ, always. 
He's still able and still willing to bless us and to give us a future and a hope when we choose to follow him, which is a message that actually runs like a thread throughout this fourth chapter, as we'll see. And so like his father, Cain was a farmer. He worked the ground while his brother Abel was a sheep herder. Both were honorable occupations, and obviously both men were raised with an understanding of who God was and what it meant to live for him, because right from the very beginning of their story, we find them bringing offerings to God. This is worship to him, and this part of the story has caused a lot of confusion uh, for Christians over the years, because at the surface, it seems unfair that Abel's sacrifice was accepted while Cain's was not. One popular teaching, at least in modern times, has been that Cain's offering was unacceptable because it was not a blood sacrifice. Listen, if you simply read this at face value, particularly in the original Hebrew, it becomes very clear that was not the problem with Cain's offering at all. Okay? Both Cain and Abel's offerings are described in the ancient Hebrew as minka. It's described in Leviticus 2 as a gift for the purpose of honoring God. Right? It was typically done in the, in the uh, context of a celebration. So the minka offering was simply an act of worship. And as far as the minka was concerned, fruit and vegetable offerings were as acceptable and appropriate as animal offerings. Uh, actually, it's very clear, especially again in the original text, that the problem with Cain's offering had nothing to do with the absence of blood. See, it, it wasn't the substance of Cain's offering that was actually the problem. It was the substance of Cain's heart that was the problem because his heart was not inclined toward God, as we'll see, which is what made his offering unacceptable. And verses 3 and 4 say that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock, which is actually... Uh, profoundly significant because throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we find the first fruits and the firstborn always being reserved for God in worship, set aside as sacred. In fact, Israel itself was considered as God's first fruit in Jeremiah 2.3 and his firstborn in Exodus 4.22, uh, which is also imagery shared by the church in Romans 11.6 and Hebrews 12.23, and of course by Christ himself in Romans 8.29. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23 as well. Why? Right? Why is it so important to God to have the first fruits and the firstborn in worship? Well, I'll just tell you, it has nothing to do with God's need to have what is first. No, it has everything to do with our need to put Him first. Okay? This is all about us showing our veneration, our respect, reverence, and adoration toward God as first in our lives. Requiring the first fruits and firstborn in worship is all about teaching us to put God first in our lives. It's about the condition of our hearts toward Him. You see, it would have required no more work for Cain to bring his first fruits to God in worship, but instead he simply brought some of the fruit, not the first fruit. Why? Why not bring God the first fruits? Well, it's because God wasn't first in Cain's life. Hebrews 11.4 describes Abel as faithful and righteous, while John, 1 John 3.12 describes Cain as of the evil one. Yet, it's not the offerings themselves that made Abel righteous or Cain evil. No, the acceptable offering of Abel and the unacceptable offering of Cain were a direct result of what was already in their hearts. 
Martin Luther wrote, the, fa uh, the faith of the individual was the weight which added value to Abel's offering. Likewise, Cain's offering simply betrays what was already in his heart. You understand, we are accountable not only for what we do, but for why we do it. We're accountable not only for what we do, but why we do it. In, in Mark's gospel account, he says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, Mark 12, 41 through 44. Right? You, you can attend church. You can participate in worship. You can give in the offering and serve in the ministry. But if you're doing all of that out of religious obligation instead of reverent adoration, well, then how acceptable do you think all of that is to God? Listen, you understand God doesn't need our service. You know that, right? God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our ministry. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need anything. A.W. Tozer wrote, This may hurt some of you, but I'm obliged to tell you that God does not need anything you have. He does not need a dime of your money. It's your own spiritual welfare at stake in such matters as these. There's a beautiful and enriching principle involved in our offering to God what we are and what we have, but none of us are giving because there's a depression in heaven. The Bible teaching is plain. You have right to keep what you have all to yourself, but it will rust and decay and ultimately ruin you. In Psalm 50, 12, God says to his people, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. You see, God doesn't need our service. God doesn't need our ministry. He doesn't need our offerings and he doesn't need our worship. God needs nothing. He is complete in himself. On the contrary, he invites us to serve, he invites us to minister, he invites us to give, and he invites us to worship. Why? Because we need all of that in order to express our devotion to him as first in our lives. And by the way, it's not as if we don't know why we do what we do, right? I mean, deep down, we know exactly what our motivations are. Did you notice in this story that not once did Cain ask God why his offering was unacceptable. Cain never asks God why his offering is unacceptable. Do you know why? Because he already knew what was in his own heart. He didn't have to ask God. If Cain had innocently made a mistake in bringing the wrong offering, he would have humbly repented before the Father, who, by the way, would have readily accepted and forgiven him. But instead, Cain was very angry, and his face fell because he knew exactly what was in his own heart. Jealousy, pride, and resentment. So why do you serve? Why do you minister? Why do you give? Why do you worship? If it's out of an overwhelming sense of reverent adoration for God and love for his people, this family, then you won't threaten to quit every time someone in the church offends you. 
You won't walk away when the church no longer meets your expectations or preferences. You won't stay home when you could be here serving your family. Listen, you won't hold your money as leverage to get what you want from the ministry. You won't only show up or participate when it's your turn to serve. You won't compare your ministry to others who have different gifts and callings. You won't expect more from others than you do from yourself. And you won't be angry when you're held accountable for your attitude toward God and his people. Because your love and adoration for him and for each other will override the frustrations that we all inevitably experience in our family. Not so for Cain. Luke eleven forty nine through 51, Jesus describes Abel as a prophet. Keep in mind that at this point in history, right, so early on in the creation story, there are only so many people on earth, right? Which means you can rest assured that Cain was on the short list of those who received the prophecies that were coming out of his brother's mouth at the time. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that as a result, Cain was probably jealous of his little brother. Jealous of his gift, resentful of his calling, and yet too proud to admit it. And so his heart was turned not only against God for pointing it out, for holding him accountable, but also against his own family for holding him accountable, probably through prophetic words that were given to him through Abel. So God, knowing all of that, of course, patiently and lovingly warns Cain, whatever the circumstances actually were, he says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Interestingly, when God says that, sin is crouching at the door, that phrase in the ancient Hebrews, the word rabats, it's uh, in its Akkadian form. Akkadian is another ancient Semitic language. In its Akkadian form, that same word was used as a name for a well-known Mesopotamian demon from the old Babylonian period who was said to linger in doorways waiting to ambush his victims. So God says, Cain's demon's desire is contrary to you. You must Rule over it. It's the exact same statement, by the way, that God makes when he refers to conflict between husbands and wives as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3, verse 16, where God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, we're supposed to hold one another accountable in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, and in the church. Accountable, not only for what we do, but for why we're doing it, and yet our natural inclination, of course, is to resist that accountability, to be contrary to it. So we must rule over, mercilessly, I might add, we must rule over the inclination within ourselves to resist accountability in our own lives. And listen, if you're a leader, if you're a leader in the church, if you're a leader at work, if you're a leader in your family, it starts with you, it starts with me. We must be accountable to one another. So look, if you're not willing to be held to account for your own actions and your own attitudes toward God and others, by God and others, then I'm just telling you, sin is crouching at your door. The door of opportunity that you give it and make no mistake, its desire is to have you. And I'll just be honest with you, I, I've lost count 
of the people I've known over the years whose lives have been utterly devastated. Some of them actually ended on this earth because they refused to allow themselves to be held to account for their own actions and attitudes toward God and his people. And so believing that they knew better, they walked away from the church and in doing so, out from underneath the spiritual protection that accountability affords all of us. And it's usually only a matter of time, at least in my experience, it's usually only a matter of time when you walk away from accountability in your life that the sad descent into all-out rebellion against God and his people and the destruction that it brings in your life begins. It's exactly uh, what we see here in this story in the life of Cain. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Obviously, we don't know what was said between these two brothers that day. I, I personally believe that Abel, the righteous, faithful prophet, was probably holding Cain accountable for what was in his heart based on what just happened with the offerings and, and speaking pure truth in love to Cain. I think Cain was having nothing of it. So Cain decides to silence his brother once and for all as he sheds the innocent blood of his brother Abel. Either way, we know God comes to Cain to hold him accountable for what he's done since Abel no longer could. And he asks Cain where Abel is. Now, obviously, God knows where Abel is. He knows what Cain has done. Right? He knows what Cain has said. He knows everything that's just transpired. God is not asking uh, for his own benefit. He's asking for Cain's benefit. Right? You understand, this is God giving Cain an opportunity to repent and to have his relationship with God restored. So he asks Cain where his brother is, to which Cain inexplicably replies, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The word keeper in that verse in the Hebrew is the word shamar. It has to do with responsibility. It actually means to guard or protect or to attend to. You see, when Cain asks what he thought was a rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. You absolutely are your brother's keeper, or at least you should have been, because we're responsible not just for ourselves, but for each other. Right From the moment God created those first human beings, Cain's parents in Genesis 1 and 2, to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 25 and Numbers 35, and then through the rest of biblical scripture, including several passages that we already looked at in the introduction of this sermon, we are commanded throughout to guard and protect and to attend to one another. Right? We're directly responsible for how our actions or lack of action on the behalf of others affects their lives. 
not just ours. This family called the church is not an every man for himself proposition. No, it's every man for each other. Here's the part we really don't get sometimes. First of all, when you abandon a relationship that you have no business leaving, or you wound someone else physically or emotionally or spiritually or neglect to care for someone you're in relationship with, first of all, you understand you're going to answer to God, not just for yourself, but for all those you've devastated in the process. In fact, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 1236. That means we're going to have to give an account for every unreconciled, hurtful word we've ever spoken to others, right? Regardless of everything else on top of that that we've done. Secondly, your relationships with other people are intrinsically tied to your relationship with God. And this is what I, I honestly don't think people seem to get today. We walk away from relationships or wound other people and we may recognize that it's a shame that it happened that the way that it did or you know it could have been handled better or I wish it had worked out differently but since we still love Jesus and he still forgives us at the end of the day I know that my relationship with God is still good listen if there's someone in your life or someone who used to be in your life who's broken or hurting because of something you did to them that you shouldn't have or because of something you didn't do that you should have and, and you haven't asked them for forgiveness and repented for the hurt you've caused in their lives, then I have news for you. Your relationship with God is not good. It's not okay. The Apostle John wrote, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20. Listen, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot claim to love your brother if you are knowingly allowing the hurt that you've caused in their lives to continue without asking for forgiveness. You are not good with God and he's not good with you. And it all comes back to the responsibility that each one of us bears for the other. John Walton writes, when we refuse to accept responsibility, we've paved the way for refusing to accept blame. This is precisely what we find in epic proportion in our culture today. People refusing to accept the blame for their own actions or inactions, which is also obviously nothing new because it's precisely what we see in Cain's life as well. And so how does that end up affecting his life, his relationship with his family, and his relationship with God? Well, God says to Cain, who was a farmer, who made his living from the ground, this is his whole life, God says, now you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So Cain's refusal to accept responsibility or blame for his own actions has directly affected the quality of his own life. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me, will kill me. Now, who do you suppose Cain is worried about killing him? Right at this point, there, there are only so many people on the earth. 
It's his family. His own family. So Cain refusing to accept responsibility or blame for his actions has not only directly affected the quality of his own life, but it has torn his family relationships apart. Verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain, refusing to accept responsibility or blame for his actions, has not only directly affected the quality of his own life and torn his family relationships apart, but it has driven him away from the very presence of God. You see, the responsibility that we have for one another affects every single aspect of our lives. You cannot shirk the responsibility that God has given you for the other people in your life and expect it not to affect every other area of your life, including your relationship with God. It most certainly will. Yet even at that, this is the amazing part of the story to me. For all the jealousy, pride, hatred, lies, even murder that Cain commits. God says to Cain, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This is God's immeasurable mercy at work in the life of a man who does not deserve it, because even in Cain's own horrific sin, God still loves him. He still gives him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be redeemed, which is just what he does for us in our lives today. Because why? Well, of course, we've all hurt other people, haven't we? I mean, let's be honest. We've all shirked our responsibility at times when it comes to guarding and protecting and tending to one another. And yet God in his great love and his great mercy for us affords us the opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come back into relationship with him and those we've hurt. And it starts when we accept the responsibility for what we've said or done that we shouldn't have or maybe what we've not said or done that we should have and then repent of that sin and ask for forgiveness. And in that very moment, he restores our relationship with him through Jesus Christ who is always interceding on our behalf to that very end. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You notice the, the pride here. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Cain moves away, and as uh, any future in farming has been cursed for him, he instead builds a city 
and raises a family there. And then we have a short genealogy of Cain's family in verses 18 through 22, which culminates in Lamech, a grandson, seven generations removed, displaying the very same sin as Cain. Right? And this is here, by the way, to show us, the reader, that the line of Cain is dominated by those who have absolutely no regard for the lives of others or the responsibility they have to guard and protect and attend to their fellow man. In other words, nothing has changed for Cain or his descendants, even though by the patience and mercy of God, he's been permitted to live and even thrive away from his parents and away from God. And even though Cain has accepted the consequences of his behavior, hear me, He's accepted the consequences of his behavior, yet he refused to change. And the result is a trail of devastation and brokenness that continues in the lives of those he's in relationship with. You see, we're required not just to accept our behavior, but to change it. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4, 17. It's one thing to know and accept what is right. That's good but it's something altogether different to actually do what is right. And I would say this is, again, one of the great struggles for the church as a whole today, because for the most part, I think most Christians understand and accept the truth about accountability and responsibility in relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the application of it that we have a hard time with. Right? Because actually changing the way that we live in order to be accountable to one another and responsible for one another, well, that's not something a lot of people are comfortable with or willing to do. What you end up with is a lot of professing believers who know the truth but don't always live it when it comes to how we interact with one another, which inevitably leads to a trail of people whose lives are broken and devastated because of the church. In truth, that has been a trend in the American church for a long time now, and I think it's high time we change it. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge, a place of healing, a place of love, a place of compassion. Listen, the church is supposed to be a place of forgiveness, a place where people are protected and cared for and provided for and attended to. These are supposed to be the hallmarks of the church. The fact is, if the church is going to be what God created it to be, well, then we're going to have to be more than just friendly. We're going to have to be more than just comfortable, more than just sociable. Why? Because this is family. These are your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers your sons and your daughters. This is the way God intended for it to be. And listen, no matter how far we may ever stray from the path that he has put us on as the church, no matter how far we may stray from him and from each other, there is always hope for tomorrow. There's always hope for restoration because we still belong to him, which means whether we act like it or not, we are still in Christ. We are still his family. In fact, the last two verses of this chapter were introduced to Seth, the son who would fulfill what Abel could not and Cain would not, a man whose own children call upon the name of the Lord. They return to the path of submission and worship 
that Cain departed from. And just as the seventh generation from Cain, Lamech, was a murderer, the seventh generation from Seth, the man named Enoch, was said to have walked with God, whose family line ultimately leads to Jesus Christ. What an incredibly hopeful way to end a very difficult story. You see, no matter how far we stray from this path, uh, from his path, as, even as the church, there's always hope for us to be reconciled to him and to one another in Christ. And the truth is, nothing less will do. Nothing short of that will do. Because we're family. Brothers and sisters. Mothers and fathers. Sons and daughters. We're family. Which means we owe it to God. And we owe it to one another. To live like it. Let's pray.